right. As we can, misconceptions that a lot of times people have about the Bible uh, will deal with the pop-up windows in my in my computer. But one of the one of the misconceptions that people will have is that the Bible is simply not reliable. I mean, you just can't trust. If you talk to the average person on the street, even if they say they like the Bible, even if they say, "Oh, there's 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 good stuff that we can learn from it." They'll tend to say, "Yeah, it's it's basically mythology. It's it's uh, it's a bunch of legends. It's whatever." Um, the Vinci Code, which became this massive big seller and has spawned what, three movies, I think, in the, in the series. In the Da Vinci Code, author Dan Brown writes, "The Bible is the product of man, my dear, not of God." Bible didn't fall magically from the clouds. Man created it as an historical record of tumultuous times, and it has evolved through countless translations and editions and revisions. History's never had a definitive version of the book. Um, completely just ignoring the fact that the Dead Sea Scrolls show that there was already a pretty strong corpus that Jesus had in his time, of at least the Old Testament. In the book regarding the Council of Nicaea in 325 A.D., character says, more than 80 Gospels were considered for the New Testament, and yet only a relative few were chosen for inclusion. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John among them. Among them. The earlier Gospels were outlawed, gathered up and burned. Because the whole point of the book is that the church has consciously morphed scripture, damaged scripture to prove its own point and to push its own dogma. By the way, the four Gospels are the earliest Gospels that we have. The Gnostic Gospels that Brown actually likes were written centuries later. But he's like, oh, no, no, those were gathered up and burned. You go, no, no, no. Those were all written like 180, 280, 380, 500 AD. By the way, also, no other Gospels were considered for canonization at Nicaea. Those are the only four that were. The idea that there were, well, 80 different Gospels and then they threw out all the other ones at Nicaea and you go, no, it was only those four. That's just not even remotely historically accurate. The Mauritarian canon shows that the church recognized only the four biblical gospels 150 years before Nicaea. It's important that we know that. Origen, writing 150 years before the, the official canonization of scripture, says we've approved solely what the church has recognized, which is that only the four gospels should be accepted. 150 years before Nicaea. Help me out here. Why have so many people just accepted what, da what Dan Brown wrote as gospel truth? About history, about canonization, about the reliability of the gospels. Why? That's a good question because none of the other stuff, I mean, when he talked about the Mona Lisa, when he talked about all other kinds of things, they were all lies also. Oh, yeah. I mean, I this, this history is horrible. Yeah, it's just, it just made up his, it's all fiction. Uh-huh. But it was written. As a viewership, we're kind of lazy. So when we hear something, we're just, we're not necessarily going to run and research every little bit of it. Especially if you throw a lot of research. I mean, throw a lot of research in my books. And most people go, okay, wow, well, you did a lot of work. Except for Graham, who like Googled every single <laughs> bit of it, which is why it took him three weeks to read the book. But... But yeah, most of us sit there, we're, we're lazy. If somebody's done the legwork, we go, okay. But maybe even more to the point, as I was talking to somebody earlier this week, anymore, you don't really make an argument by logic. You don't make an argument by data. You make an argument by narrative. You tell the story. If it rings true, it's true. If, if you, Don, if you have a really good story, and I say, that's interesting. That's not what actually happened. You go, but, but I feel like that's what Cromwell did. It's like, well, but it isn't what he actually did. It's like, when you try to discuss that with people, if you say, actually, well, that's not that they go, hey, you know, they just made up the Bible. No, 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 no. Here's what, here's what actually happened in Nicaea. People actually get upset with you for being more historically accurate. If you say, well, it's not actually what this verse says, people can get upset. Why get upset? Why does it cause an emotional reaction? Because you're messing with the narrative. Not the narrative of Scripture, 
the narrative tracking in my head. And we all do that. We all do that because we tend to get drawn in by the narrative. Da Vinci Code, whatever else you want to say, is a rip-roaring yarn. If you've ever read this thing, it just it moves along. You get to the end of a chapter and you go, well, I've got to read the next chapter. It's about as good as I've ever read at getting you to the end of a chapter and going, you've got to read the next part. And for people that don't crack open their Bibles, for people who are more interested in the narrative going on in their hearts than in what's actually going on with Scripture or with history, especially if, especially if, you have a writer who is saying something you wanted to believe, i.e., that the church, you know those people that say that some things are good and some things are bad, and some of the things that you want to do maybe you shouldn't do, some of those things that, that you are, maybe you shouldn't be. Those guys are just, you know, fascist jerks. If, if a book says that, that really resonates. The idea that all this was thrown together like that, that resonates. So when we're talking about the reliability of scripture, it's helpful for us to say, actually, I know why I believe what I believe. And it's not just because it's a narrative that connects with me, though, again, I have to present it kind of as a narrative. How do you prove the Bible? How do you prove the reliability? How do you prove Christianity? You don't. You can't do it. It doesn't work like that. You can't prove the Bible. You can't prove Christianity. You can never, for instance, you can never prove biblical inerrancy. Why not? You would, in theory, have to prove every statement in the Bible. Right. It's not just a matter of, well, because it's hard to do or because, um, it isn't inerrant or because... The reason you can't prove inerrancy, ultimately, is a basic logic problem. You can never absolutely prove a negative. What? Well, I was also thinking it's hard to Well, you've got a big grin on your face. Yeah, what do you think? It's nothing to do with what you're saying, so go ahead. Okay. It's hard to prove history, too. I mean, it's really hard to prove history. It is. Was Floyd there on Tuesday? I'm like, oh. Especially if Tuesday was in 1863. It's like, I... Uh, there's not photographic evidence as to whether Floyd was standing there necessarily. Yeah. Uh, but it doesn't stop Christians from trying. I mean, how many expeditions to find the ark has there been? Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah. It, I was going to say. Yeah. It's, we know where it's at. Uh, it's like, like, oh, yeah. It's on my Duh, the Bible even says that. What's your problem? <laughs> but now it doesn't mean that the Bible isn't inerrant. It doesn't mean that you can't make a good case, because that's the thing. You can make a good case, but you can never prove a negative. You can never prove that there is no error. You can prove that something is correct. You can't necessarily prove it. There is never an error there. Because even if you say, I've gone through every verse and I've shown it, it's like, yes, but might there be an error tomorrow? Might there be something you didn't pick up? Might there be an error of application two weeks from now when I realize, oh, well, this doesn't really work. You can never prove it, but you can make a case. When making a case about any kind of document reliability, any kind, Bible, Caesars, Annals, anything, history and literature use three basic tests. So why not use their tests? Why not use the tests that secular authorities go, this is how we test any reliability of any documents. The first test is called the bibliographic evidence test. How many manuscripts do we have? How early are the manuscripts? How close in time? How accurate to the originals are they? That makes some sense, doesn't it? Let's figure out what's going on biblically and bibliographically. How, how, how if you say we, the, the earliest biblical manuscript we have is from 1963, that's probably not going to be something that you can put a lot of strength on. Second, the external evidence test. Are the documents historically accurate? Do they purport things that other documents from the era seem to also suggest? Is there any kind of contemporary source that says, yeah, that's, that's what actually happened? Right? Because if, if we don't have a very early manuscript at all, it's dubious. If we say, well, they're saying stuff that's categorically contrary to what everybody else said happened at that point. Yes, this is this is Lincoln holding the the uh, Declaration of Independence and, and the machine gun riding a bear. I'm pretty sure he didn't do that. Boo. Is that somebody's hand? Can you prove it? Yeah, that's a good point. Hey, can you prove that it didn't happen? 
get it out of your system. <laughs> oh, by the way, my favorite of all those, and not just because I'm trying to make anybody feel cocky, was the fake news. That was good. All right. Third, the internal evidence test. Okay, so if you've got something that's relatively early on, and you've got something that seems to be historically accurate, what does the document itself purport? Did the writer seem to think that the writer was writing history, or did the writer seem to think that the writer was writing fantasy? What was the author's intention? Because it might be historically accurate. It doesn't mean it actually happened. Amazingly, Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter was a fun movie and a much better book. The book is terrifyingly historically solid. It's just that the author went, what if we tweak it just this way a little bit? But, you know, it's like, you know, Lincoln's mother died of consumption. We don't know how that was, but she just kept getting sicker and sicker and weaker and weaker until she just died. Could it be that she'd been being fed upon by a vampire? You know, no. <laughs> but, but, the, but, I mean, the stuff that he's weaving is genuinely historically accurate, weaving with a lot of goofiness. But the author clearly... I mean, you can't title a book Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter without it clearly being something where you're trying to write fantasy. So you've got to put all three of these tests together to try to assess the reliability of things. So let's start with that first one, internal evidence test. Relying solely on this, which is, by the way, what most Christians do, relying solely on this is not a good idea. It's circular reasoning. The Bible is the Word of God. Why do you know that? Because the Bible says so. Why should you trust the Bible? Because the Bible is infallible. How do you know? Because it's the Word of God. Tell me that that's, I mean, that is an argument that I've heard so many times. I'm right, and I promise that I'm trustworthy, which means you can trust me, what with the fact that I'm right. And we do that all the time. You can't do that. That can't be the only argument. But the Bible itself seems to think it's trustworthy. And that's, that's important. If the Bible says, by the way, these are just a collection of interesting fables, and I'd like you to know about this. Aesop actually did that. So, by the way, this is a bunch of fables. I, I'm not pretending that this is true. Let me just preface this by saying, yeah, no. Well, the Bible didn't do that. Somebody read me 2 Timothy 3.16. Yes, I'm actually going to have you read Bible verses. So if a couple of you could pull out your Bibles, that would be great. 2 Timothy 3.16. No, you're, good. you're doing good. Go ahead. All scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. There you go. Look at you. I know, I know. Sarah's like, Sarah's like, that's my husband. Paul considers all scripture to be inspired. Literally, God-breathed. So what the word inspired means. Inspired, breathed into. Anyway. As a former Pharisee, he's almost certainly meaning the Old Testament here, right? Right? Could, uh, uh, because a lot of the stuff was already being accepted as scripture when he wrote that. Like what? Um, I think a lot of his own epistles were Peter stuff and some of the gospels, I think. Maybe I'm mistaken. That's a good question. But I don't know. I'm going off memory. I vaguely remember a lot of things were already I know. You were so high, you know? No, anyway, no. No, 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 no. I, no, I don't disagree. I don't disagree. The danger, though, is that the danger, though, is an amazing number of Christians cite this verse and say everything in the Bible is God breathed. Paul said so. And I'm like, um, there's a lot that hadn't even been written by the time Paul wrote this. You know, John hadn't been written, Revelation hadn't been written, uh, Hebrews hadn't been written. There's a lot of things you go, um, well, he wasn't referring to that book, but he was referring to a lot of it. Definitely the whole Old Testament, and I think we'll see. Other things as well. Somebody read me 1 Timothy 5.18. But the scripture says, Do not muzzle the ox while it is treading out, out the grain, and the worker deserves his Okay. So Paul considers Luke 10.7 to be scripture. Right? Because that's what Jesus is saying. He's quoting Jesus there. So he says, Scripture says... Now remember this, Paul is writing, Paul died in the mid-50s, right? And he's quoting Luke as scripture. What does that suggest? Logic it for me. That they accepted it as scripture. That they accepted it as scripture, and what does that suggest? Any 
And he wrote it before the... Yeah. That Luke was written before the mid-50s. So just keep that in the back of your head. But So yeah, at least in some level, Paul says, in Scripture, in another letter to Timothy, I'm including the Gospels, or at least Luke. I'm considering that Scripture. Read 2 Peter 3, 15 through 16. It's a sword drill. 2 Peter 3, 15 through 16. It's all right. They put all these extra things in there for you. And it, it, just makes it, it does. It does. Well, and, and, and we've run into this even in youth group. Um, even people are like, I know my Bible. But when you go, sword drill, where's 2 Peter? You go, it's after uh, Genesis. You know, it's, you, 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 the, uh, the being put on the spot can freak you out. Okay, who's got who there? Bear in mind that our Lord's patience patient means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort, as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. There are, there are a lot of things I respect about Peter. A lot of things I respect about Peter. Love me, my Peter. Quietly, these couple verses are one of the things I respect the most about Peter. Is Peter, who we know by this time has gotten publicly chewed out by Paul for for living not the... Paul is basically like, um, you're living with the wrong regime. Remember last week we, we talked about you have to pick which regime you're going to follow. You can only follow one master. It's like you're picking the wrong regime. You're not living like you're part of the kingdom. Publicly chewing Peter out. And the only time Peter refers to Paul in his letters, he says, okay, Paul says some things that are kind of hard, you know, but he's right, and it comes from God. I have a tremendous respect for Peter for doing that. It takes a lot of guts to sit there and go, no, the only thing I'm going to say about Paul is he's right. And it comes from God. Peter considers Paul's writing to be God-breathed, God-inspired. Now, that means the word scripture, but as such. I reversed those. I was thinking, uh, Paul's about Peter here. I, I, I knew it. That's, that's but you're right, though, in terms of the, and they're kind of self-supporting a little bit here. Now, Peter might not be right, but if Peter's right, then you go, well, that means that at least some of Paul's writings, well, the stuff where Paul seems to think he's coming from God, is coming from God. Somebody, I've got, a, I've got a whole clump of verses here, so I want several people. Who will take 1 Corinthians 2, 12? Raise your hand and say you'll look it up. Okay, Eric. Who will take 1 Corinthians 14, 37? Thank you, Jeff. Who will take Galatians 1, 11 through 12? Thank you, Christy. Who will take 1 Thessalonians 2, 13? Thank you, Randy. So, let's, let's look at these in succession. Okay, 1 Corinthians 2.12. We have not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we may understand what God has freely given us. Okay, 14.37. If anybody thinks he is a prophet or spiritually gifted, let him acknowledge that what I am writing to you is the Lord's commandment. Okay, Galatians 1, 11 through 12. I want you to know, brothers, that the gospel that the gospel I preached is not something man made up. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. First Thessalonians 2.13. And we also thank God continually, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as it actually is the word of God which is at work in you who believe. Okay, so Paul believes that what he's writing is from God. At least large chunks of what he's writing is coming from God. It's not just something that he's making up. Not even something he's figuring out cleverly. It's like, no, no. This is inspired. This is truth with a capital T, truth. Somebody read me Revelation 1, 10 through 11, and then somebody else read me 22, 18 through 19. By the way, 22, 18 through 19, some of the easiest verses to possibly find in a sword drill. <laughs> but the only other easy one I would find would be Genesis 1-1. One, one. On the Lord's day, on the Lord's day, in the spirit, 
and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet which said, Write on a scroll what you see, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. How far? Through 11. Okay, so 22, 18 through 19. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds anything to them, God will add them to the plagues described in this book. If anyone takes words away from this book of prophecy, God will take away from him his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. Okay, so John believes that what he writes is coming from God and not from himself, right? So you've got Paul saying, Scripture which would definitely include the Old Testament and apparently at least some of the Gospels. Peter saying, Paul. Paul saying the stuff that I'm writing. John saying the stuff that I'm writing. We consistently seem to be having people going, I genuinely think that what I'm writing is not just, is not just fantasy. It's not even just true. It's capital T truth from God. I'm, I'm not sharing myths. I'm sharing truth. By the way, Revelation 22, 18-19, since this is a class on... Misconceptions people have about the Bible. Revelation 22, 18 through 19 is not talking about the Bible. It's talking about the book of Revelation, right? Yeah, you don't have to raise your hand. Yes, is the, is the short answer. And the slightly longer answer, answer, I think, is that we give a little bit to God's sovereignty here and say, he didn't write this in every other book, which I also think he wouldn't be terribly happy about adding to John either, and or anything else. And say, it's conveniently placed. It is conveniently placed. One might even say sometimes, unfortunately, conveniently placed. Because people go, right, it's at the end of the Bible saying, don't mess with this book. You go, Okay, even the word Bible, technically, doesn't mean book. Bible means, and we'll talk about this maybe in a second, but Bible comes from the Latin word Biblia, which is from the Greek word Biblia, which is plural, right? So, book, Bible technically means books, if you take it back far enough. And so, you go, don't add to, the, to, the, to this book, you go, right? But it's not talking about the Bible. Now, the argument that he's making is, because this comes from God, don't be messing with this. And if we say, yeah, and large chunks clearly come from God, if not the whole thing, but definitely large chunks, they believe it's coming from God. So that argument applies to everything that arguably is coming from God. And yes, it is conveniently placed at the end, and I'll give God credit that maybe he knew that. And that thus, it, it's, it's safe to apply, cross-apply that to, to Scripture at, at large. But people do that automatically because they just go, it's at the end of the book of the Bible, and therefore it's talking about the whole Bible. And you're just like, well, that's you reading into this, not you reading out of this. Though, you can make that cross-application, I think. Ah, that's a large chunk of the Bible that seems to think that it's divinely inspired. At the very least. There is no verse that says the whole Bible is divinely inspired. I wish there were, it would make it really simple. But there's nothing quite that clear, in large part because no part of the Bible was written when the Bible was already decided as canon, so it's a little hard to figure that out. But none of that matters if the Bible is unreliable to begin with. I mean, if, if I write my books, yeah, this is totally true. First page of Dan Brown's book says, this is totally true. There's a preface page in Dan Brown's book that says, Everything I write here is completely historically accurate. And I'm like, how do you sleep at nights putting a, a page like that in, in front of your book? How historically accurate, then, is the Bible? Let's do that second test, the external evidence test. No biblical event, person, or place has ever been disproven, scientifically or historically. It doesn't prove anything. But when you look at so many different historical, quote-unquote, documents, you look at the Book of Mormon and the sheer... Hundreds of things that people are like, wait, what? You talk about elephants in the New World, you talk about horses, you talk about swords, you talk about great stone cities in the northern hemisphere. It's like, um, no. You know, they're, they're, it, doesn't, it doesn't work like that. But nothing in scripture has ever been disproven. In fact, there's a lot of stuff, like descriptions of the extent of the Hittite Empire, 
the location of Iconium, the destruction of Tyre, the existence of a first century Nazareth. There were so many things that historians went, well, the Bible's clearly wrong about this. Because that's not, oh, look, we found more evidence. Actually, the Bible's right about that. I mean, multiple things that we can look at where people said, this clearly disproves the Bible. And that when secular historians even look more, they realize, oh, um, no, this is actually solid. Over and over and over again. It's a reputable historical document, at least in those things. First century Roman historian Josephus wrote, there really was a Jewish rabbi named Jesus who was crucified under Pontius Pilate. Josephus wasn't a Christian, he was Jewish, actually. Uh, Papias, a close friend of John's, was quoted as saying that the Gospel of Mark was an accurate summary of what he himself had learned from Peter. He's like, yeah, this is, this historically reflects everything I know about what happened here. Irenaeus, a, a, a disciple of a disciple of John, wrote that Mark, Luke, and John are all good histories of what actually happened in the first century. He's like, yeah, no, from what everything I understand, from what... From what I've learned, this is, is solid history. We have actually no reason to believe, Kazunai, that the Bible is anything other than an historic, a reliable historical document, unless we begin with the preconceived notion that it isn't. I mean, because when we start looking at documents of the time, you go, it doesn't contradict anything. There are multiple other sources that go, yeah, it, that's what happened. Or, yeah, I, from what I understood, that's what happened. Yeah. As I read this book, that jives with everything that I've heard about what happened over here. Or even what I saw happen over here. Doesn't prove anything. Doesn't prove anything. But you go, well then why would you doubt the historical reliability of it? If, if, if there's nothing that we have that suggests directly that that's not what historically happened. And multiple things where people say, no, I would attest to that's what happened, or that that's an accurate assessment of what I understand from other sources and things, right? Doesn't prove anything. But why would you go, yeah, I just don't know. Unless you're starting with the assumption of, because stuff like that doesn't happen. Doesn't, again, doesn't prove anything. Doesn't mean the Bible is, even if it did, even if you say, oh, no, that's really historically reliable, you go, great. But is, is the Bible in your hands the one that all these guys are actually talking about? If, if the Bible writers seem to think they're writing history and truth, and if there's nothing in it that contradicts history and what we know, yeah, but, but is that the one that they're saying is Scripture and God breathed? Can you re reliably reconstruct the original manuscripts that they did? Even if historical sources say, yep, that sounds about right, and the Bible perceives itself as divinely inspired, is this really the Bible? or I suppose if I want to be obnoxious grammatically, are this, are these really the Bible? Well, yeah, let's look at it. Old Testament. Can we, can we look at the Old Testament? Dead Sea Scrolls, discovered in 1947. We talked about this in the other class. Included copies of every Old Testament book except for one, Esther. They had copies of all the other ones. Comparisons with modern texts, and with the next oldest copies, like a thousand years younger, than the Dead Sea Scrolls, showed there's little to no variation. It's remarkable, especially when you look at ancient world sources and how they tended to morph with things. You go, wait, a thousand years later? And it pretty much looks, for all intents and purposes, exactly the same. There's, you know, a jot or a tittle off here or there. But in general, you go, no, pretty much. Because the, the, the Hebrew scribes were obsessive, compulsive about making sure that they got this right, right? We've talked about this before, where they, they counted the letters back and you know made sure from the beginning of the document to the end of the document, they counted the letters, and you have to make sure that when you get to the middle, there's an M in the middle. Yeah? My understanding was that the, the people, the scribes that were really meticulous were the Nazarenes, though. Those were like after Christ. That too. Do we know that beforehand they were the same? Because everything I've heard about meticulousness was all talking about the Nazarenes. Well, that's a good question, and I'll double check that. But let me speak. Let me speak for a moment. No, no, no. That's a good point. I will say, and this is this is me being very old with a faulty memory. But I remember <laughs> when I was studying the Book of Esther, ironically enough, 
that this came up, that even during that era of that time period, that they were fairly intense about that sort of thing. Now, let me double check that before I speak too much on that. But what that does is kind of speak to the fact that like at the dead center of Esther is some fairly important stuff. So the fact that, let me, I don't want to speak too much of that. That's a good point. Whatever the case, by the time you get to a thousand years after the Dead Sea Scrolls were written, they're still written almost exactly the same way. It suggests that the Bible, the Old Testament, that Jesus would have read, is pretty solidly the Old Testament that you and I are reading. It's, you know, in English. But you have every reason to believe that it's also the same Old Testament that Paul called inspired. Yeah, so, so when we talk about, is this an early document? Is this a reliable manuscript? You go, um, in the Old Testament, yeah, we have every reason to believe. When you're talking about the New Testament, talk about the Gospels, Mark is generally considered by scholars to be the first Gospel to have been written, since both Matthew and Luke's Gospels seem to have been quoting from it. In fact, Luke even said at the beginning of his Gospel, I, 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 I researched a lot of stuff. I talked to a lot of people. I got stuff in front of me. I'm, I'm checking all this stuff out as well as I can. Luke has no problem with going, sure, that one. I wasn't there. So I have no problem with the fact that Luke is like, yeah, I talked to Mary, I talked with Paul, I talked, I, I had Mark sitting in front of me, I chatted with Peter that one time. You know, yeah, I, I researched all this stuff. Luke, as we said, wrote both the, the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts, right? Which is basically just Gospel of Luke Part 2. The Book of Acts ends in the mid-50s. That very well might have been that Luke didn't finish it because events were still going on. We don't know exactly why, but it's bizarre that Paul is one of the main characters of the book of Acts, and Paul died rather spectacularly, and Luke never wrote anything about that. It's possible that Luke thematically said, I just don't want to. He wrote about other people dying spectacularly, Stephen dying spectacularly. I would have thought that he would have written about Peter and Paul dying. There's a lot of thought that says, well, maybe... That's because it hadn't happened yet by the time he finished the book of Acts. That he's writing this in the mid-50s. And as we just talked about with Luke, by the time Paul is writing, he's citing Luke as accepted scripture. And we know Paul is writing his letters before he died. Right? I think Paul was writing his letters before he died yeah. in the 50s. <laughs> but Luke may have died. That's, why not That's the other thing, too. But whatever the case, it suggests that However you want to look at this, Gospel of Luke and possibly Luke-Acts were written before Paul died. Written in the 50s. If the book of Acts was written in the mid-50s, and it was the second book of two, the first book of which was already accepted as scripture by the time Paul's writing in the mid-50s, the Gospel of Luke had, had to be certain had to be written before that. I don't know how early. Meaning the Gospel of Mark had to be written even before that. Possibly for all we know in the late 30s. Maybe in the 40s. The main argument for a later edition, or a later writing of the Gospels, uh, uh, the, the, when scholars say well, clearly they were written after 70 AD, is because Jesus talks about the destruction of the temple. Well, it didn't happen until 70 AD. So clearly they have to have been written after 70 AD, right? Which is why I say I think it's written after 70 AD. Clearly, clearly. <laughs> Certainly Psalm 22 had to be written after 33, all right? It described events like a, like a reporter. But yeah, you're sitting there going, wait a minute. Your main argument for why it has to be written after 70, and thus why it was written a whole generation after Jesus died, is because Jesus actually knew what was coming up. But the contextual evidence, if you take away the presupposition, the preconceived notion of that, the contextual, uh, the contextual evidence would suggest, not it's written pretty close to Jesus' death, within a decade or two? If the Gospels are written within a decade or two, close enough to be reviewed, verified, refuted, and nobody did? I mean, obviously we had people say, oh, the Pharisees saying, oh, well, Jesus didn't rise from the dead. The disciples came and took his body. Okay, whatever. When the books came out and they're citing things, the only contemporary response we have is people like Josephus going, yeah. You don't have people go, why? I never said that. No, he wasn't there. No, that didn't. 
compare the evidence manuscripts or the evidence of manuscripts. When you look at classical artifacts like uh, Tacitus's writing, writing in 100 AD, the earliest fragment we have, the earliest fragment we have is a thousand years after he wrote. Caesar writing his war annals in the 100 BC or so, the earliest fragment we have is a thousand years after he wrote it. Um, Herodotus, 1300 years after he wrote it. Aristotle, 1400 years after he wrote it. John, 17 to 38 years after he wrote it. And people don't sit there and go, well, I don't think Herodotus really wrote it. I don't think that really happened. There was no Herodotus. Now, sometimes people will say, I don't know that Homer really existed as such. Or there are other people like that that they say, oh, I think that's a kind of an Ellery Queen kind of name. You know, that there's a bunch of writers said, oh, we're going to get together and be Homer, or what have you. But in general, we don't say, in general, people don't pull out the war annals of, of Caesar and say, obviously, we can't trust this because... The earliest documents we have are the thousand years afterwards. The earliest fragments we have are within a generation of John writing. Now, that's just the earliest fragment we have. The earliest little chunk. All told, we have over 20,000 early manuscripts of the New Testament. In fact, we have almost 24 extant manuscripts from within 50 years of when the New Testament was written. Almost 24,000 manuscripts of these things. Now, granted, do they all necessarily match completely? No. There are some texts that are better than others. Some are, are, are corrupted to one degree or another. But you sit there and go, that's a, that's a significant number. We realize, yes, that's why I have three copies of Herodotus from 1,300 years after he wrote. But 24,000 copies of things from within 50 years of when the New Testament was written. So from like before 150, we had that many? Closest runner-up in the ancient world is the Iliad, with 643 manuscripts, the earliest of which is, from, is within 500 years of having it been written. That's significant. Does it prove anything? Nope. But that's significant. For anybody who goes, we don't have any, wait a minute, the earliest manuscripts we have are from the Middle Ages. No. What are you going to say? Mike. I was just going to say, as soon as you would start on the topic in general, the first thing that came to my mind was Plato's Republic, that I've seen a chart like that that was talking about Plato's Republic and how few manuscripts we have from a thousand years later, and that's all we have. And the manuscripts we have differ significantly. There's debates about like which passage is correct. Right. Anything. It's just you know, here it is, and generally accepted, and that's good enough. Now, now I do understand when people say, "Well, sure," because Plato's just discussing philosophy, and you're, oh, political philosophy, and this is the way the world should be set up. So, I mean, there's. Some people said for that, but people go, yeah, but he's not purporting to be writing God's own truth. And the Bible deigns to pretend that it's God's own truth, and at which point I go, oh, is it that you say, therefore we should hold it under more scrutiny because, because it's pretending to be inspired, or is it that you are beginning with a preconceived notion of offense, that something should purport to be telling you what God is saying? Oh, yeah. And, well, there aren't any. I mean, they burned them all intentionally, so there would be only one copy, and there wouldn't be differences. And that's like a known part of their history that happened at least a generation after Muhammad died. Yep. Plus, the Bible was quoted extensively in the early church fathers within the first couple hundred years of the church. According to the Issachar Institute, their, their book called The Case for Christianity, you could destroy all the manuscripts of the New Testament, all 24,000 of those things, and destroy all the New Testaments currently in existence in the world. And you could reproduce all but 11 verses of the New Testament from these quotes from the early church fathers. From within the very early nascent times of the church, the Bible is solid, the Bible is understood by these people and it's being quoted. The idea that we just don't know what the early church thought, we really don't know what the Bible said, that's um, ridiculous, actually. And yet, how many of us, even walking in here, even if we go, yes, I believe the Bible is the inspired word of God. Yes, I believe it's inerrant. Yes, I believe it's reliable. How many of you, if somebody said, yeah, but I mean, the, the earliest manuscripts are, we have are from hundreds of years later, and 
the, Bible, the, the Gospels weren't even written until, you know, generation after Jesus died. And, and we just, I, I mean, the history is so, there's nothing else that supports. How many of us would go, nah, they, they've got a point? No, actually. None of this proves the Bible. But all that stuff that people say, you go, well, that's, that's not even remotely accurate. That's, that's not true. That's true, then you can't go with Herodotus or Plato or mm -hmm. you can't support any other historical documents out there because obviously this one is um, supported. I will give credit to, there's a, a philosophy prof from uh, Princeton that I talked to about this one time. I'll give him credit as he said, that's exactly right. We don't know any truth from anything. We don't know anything about anything. And he started quoting Hume to me. And it was like, yeah, this is, dude, I, I wrote my senior thesis on Hume. Don't even start with me on Hume. So, I mean, but that's the thing. It was it's one of those things where you go, yeah, I respected that he had that that internal consistency where he's like, yeah, we can't trust anything, which is ultimately where that kind of mindset leads. Because I would argue that's where that mindset is trying to lead, is to say, well, obviously we can't trust this. We can't use this as something that directs our lives. How do you, Good question. Then how do you? Um, I'm just curious uh, as far as other. Um, disciplines, like anthropology and things like that, how, how do they view other uh, non-biblical uh, For the most part, I mean, they use the, the exact same sort of three tests that we're talking about here. Is can we, is this an early manuscript? Um, you look at the um, uh, Mesopotamian deluge epics, and they will be citing them as to, well, clearly this was written thousands of years after this was purported to do this, or you can look at the at the language here, and yes, uh, this this Sumerian epic is the one that we can trust because it's the oldest, because of this kind of stuff. And you can look at the language and all this, but they don't pretend that it's truth. I mean, they don't really believe that you know, Pishtim really wasn't, and uh, you know, had a boat that floated on a, on a flood and saved the animals in it. They just believe that that's what you know, Sumerians, Babylonians, etc. And ultimately, the Hebrews came along and added to it and made them tell them. Um, that's, these are the same basic tests that they go with. So, the bibliographic evidence overwhelmingly supports that the Bible um, that we have is a reliable copy of the originals. Have I proven that it is exactly what, word for word what Jesus wrote? No, but it is as reliable an historical document, as reliable a copy of the originals as you can reasonably believe that you could have. The external evidence for the Bible is at least as strong, if not much stronger, than any other ancient literature or historical documents, which for the most part, people accept. In fact, I would say it's consistently stronger evidence. The internal evidence demonstrates the authors regularly, generally, perceive themselves as speaking not on their own or making up funky stuff, but genuinely recording history and genuinely recording what God himself told them. And that doesn't prove anything. It just makes a reliable case that the Bible is a reliable document. And it makes a case that you're not ignorant for believing that. So anybody's like, well, okay, you believe your fanciful myths. Like, actually, no. I, I, I don't, actually. I, I don't believe Androcles and the lion. But I do believe this. But remember, the, as we said, the word Bible comes from the Latin word Biblia, which comes from the Greek word Biblia, which means books, right? Not book, books. Because the Bible is a bunch of them, right? We've gone through this with our, with our youth group. We made a poster for our youth group. Um, and then the other day, we had our youth group stack cups in the order of the New Testament. We had them go around the church building and figure out uh, where, they, you know, find these cups hidden here in the library or whatever. And, and, and put them all together uh, in the order of the books of the New Testament. Your list is missing Third Peter. I heard confidently when you were Third Peter. Anyway, so... <laughs> One team was really upset because they hadn't found their Third Peter cup and couldn't complete their list. <laughs> another, team, another team had no idea that there was a thing called Titus, etc. But here's the thing. We had multiple kids in our youth group that have gone through Sunday school have spent their whole lives in church, are in church families who I assume read the Bible with them, ask them to read their Bibles. Um, 
they've been through Linda's class where she has them sing songs to learn the books of the Bible. One kid knew the books of the Bible. One. Now, it didn't shock me that most of them couldn't put it together. It didn't shock me. It made me a little sad, especially since, like I said, we have multiple kids that have been churched. What, what broke my heart was that they would have, like, First and Second Timothy way over here and Corinthians way over there. And I, and I said, okay, guys, in the Bible, all of Paul's letters go together. Right? All the Gospels go together. That helped no one. That made no difference whatsoever. They had no sense of these being books Paul wrote, letters Paul wrote. The person who did know it just sang the song. They 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 knew it. And I know the order. But it's a recitation. Do you know your Bible? No. I mean, we regularly will we'll have to remind them. When we're talking about, if I say, Jesus said such and such, open up your Bibles and show me maybe where Jesus said this. They're clueless about where to look. With that, I mean, they'll start flipping through the Old Testament, and I'm like, good luck with that. When I put this together, I put this together this way for a reason. All the green books over here, these are history books, right? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, all these things, all the way, Ezra, Nehemiah, Ezra, these are all history books, right? Just like the Gospels are history books. And the Book of Acts are history books. They're narratives. Um, there's, there's funky literature, poems, um, proverbs, etc., songs going on here in this red column. Or actually, this is orangey. You can't really see in this light. This orangey, and the Paul's writings over here in red. These purple ones are all um, are, are all prophecies, which doesn't necessarily mean things going on in the future. It means God speaking through the prophets, speaking to that 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 com that context right there. These are called the major prophets, and these are called the minor prophets. Why? Just they're shorter books. They're shorter books. Are they are they less important? Are they less important prophets? Not necessarily. They were even written at the same time. I mean, you remember this graphic that we had when we're going through the minor prophets? I mean, you've got minor prophets written at the same time as these major prophets. They're all being written at the same time. And it's not like you can say, well, Isaiah is so much more important than Malachi. You know, really, they both talk about the coming Messiah. Which one are you okay dropping off? So it's it's like no no, this is important stuff. These blue this blue column over here is general letters. Hebrew is arguably not a letter; it's a sermon. When you, when you look at how it's put together, but so there's a reason why the Bible is put together this way. Why are Paul's letters put together the way they are? You know the order of Paul's letters and why they're there that way. Makes sense that Romans was first because it was it was like a flying for the job of the apostle. He didn't know them yet, so it kind of laid out his basic beliefs. Is it length? It's length. Oh. Length of book. Rescinded. My <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing to me because yeah, people are like, now again. I'm going to go back to Eric's earlier comment about God's sovereignty and knowing stuff. But yeah, they put together because in descending order of length in general. Um, because they clumped things together also, where they're like, all right, technically this might be long, but this is this part two. So, and then they put the, the personal letters at the end. So it's like letters to churches, personal letter at the end. We, we don't know a lot of different things. In fact, we don't even know, no, no, that 2 Corinthians was written after 1 Corinthians. Do we know that Hebrews doesn't belong in the Paul list? That's an interesting debate as to who wrote Hebrews. That is itself open for discussion. Um, I'm pretty sure it's not Paul because of the, 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 the vocabulary and the language that's used. But still, but still, it's just interesting 
we're, we're, there's so many things here that we don't really think through why it is this way. In fact, the breakdown of a lot of these things is very different in the Jewish Bible. There is no first and second Kings, first and second Chronicles. It's just one book. You know, it's you know, Kings. It's Samuel. It's it's. Why? Anybody know? Two scrolls. What? There are two scrolls. Uh huh. So clearly, there must be two scrolls there. You know where the where the break is between those two scrolls, right? We don't know. We don't have the scrolls and stuff. We don't know with a lot of this stuff. What were you going to say, Michael? With some of these things. Um, but even, I mean, the early church, they used the same Hebrew Bible with the same order of books and everything that Hebrews have today. Mm-hmm. Actually, I think it was pretty much this order by the time the Vulgate came along. It might have even been the Vulgate that did it, for all I know. Jerome. Oh, Jerome, trying so hard. Anyway, the order of the, of, the, of the Gospels has always bugged me, because John is sticking there between Luke and Acts. For generations, people have not realized that Luke feeds right into Acts. But I get why they did it. Why did they do it? John's so different than Matthew Mark. That's right. He's the funky one. That's what I say. Why not say John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Acts? Why not do that? Because if you have a newcomer reading them, you don't want them to have read John first. Matthew is Except for all those people who say you should read John first. I don't know. It's, it's also written last. Is that why it's last? I, I, in general, everything I've read suggests the reason it's, it's the fourth of four Gospels in there is because it's the funky one. You know, these are the three, and John, and the rest. Yes, that. You know, that's, that's John. And so, it's, it, it, I'm not going to say that the order then doesn't matter, because it does in, in a lot of things. And not everything is in bad order. I mean, these make total sense. You know, Genesis coming first before Exodus. That makes some sense. There's all sorts of stuff in there that makes total sense. And I want to give God credit for being sovereign and knowing how we're going to put all this together, and that's great. But just like the divinely inspired chapter headings in your, in your Bible, <laughs> or chapter breaks, or verse breaks, you just like... This is all stuff we've added to later. Don't read into that. I can't say that, uh, at least having read through the Old Testament, the order that it used to be, that there's some connections between books that we totally miss yep. because we pull them into a totally different context. And we don't see that, oh, this immediately followed this. Just like you say with Luke and Acts. Yep. Like, we miss this connection. This flows straight into this. thematically. Sometimes it's even word for word, like this passage is repeated and pulls you straight in. Yep. Don't even see it. Well, and that's, um, I've read uh, chronological Bibles, not chronological in the year, but in chronological where they go, this was written first, this was written next, this was written, those are really interesting because it changes your perspective. I've read Bibles that try to do chronologically where they go, this is set first, and then, set, you know, and so you, you read it as if you're going through history. You can reorganize this different ways and glean different things. It would be nice to have the thematic organization that the writers kind of originally intended. But in the grand scheme of things, that's not even my point. My point is, is all that is true, but my point is, is with the Bible that we've got, so often we have no sense of where the things are or how they were set up that way, or the fact that these are history books, whereas these are prophecy books, and we probably ought to read them slightly differently. We probably ought to read the Psalms differently than we read Matthew. Not that one is more inspired than the other, but they're thematically written differently. We should, we should preach them differently. We should study them differently. We should understand their contexts. And the fact that we have an entire generation of kids coming through the church that look at it and go, yeah, I haven't got a clue what those books are or what order they're in. I'm not slamming us. I'm not saying we're a horrible church. I wouldn't be surprised if most churches struggle with this to one degree or another. But the fact that we've we've consciously taught kids this, and it goes. Maybe we do. No, no, no. What it comes down to is, so long as we see, so long as we see the Bible 
as mythology. As long as we, we see the Bible as our mythology, and the world is right, though, that it's still just kind of a mythology. We're, we're never really going to get it. So long as we see the Bible as a collection of different verses that we like to quote, we're never really going to get it. What we need to see is that the Bible is a collection of different books. They come at things from a collection of different perspectives. You have 1,500 years worth of writing. It's not like Bible times. It's all one big clump. You have so many different writers writing over a millennium and a half, putting all this stuff together. And we have to understand there are thematic chunks of how things are set up in the Bible. If I talk about something historical in the Bible, and the, one of the kings of Israel, you should ideally, in your mind, go, oh, so we're talking right around in here. I don't even have to have memorized anything. I just go, that would be right around in here somewhere. Because by the time we get down to Ezra and Nehemiah, not so many kings floating around. Prior to Samuel, since Samuel is the one who anointed the first king, prior to 1 Samuel, not a lot of kings floating around. So if I say King Bucky in the Old Testament, you go, okay, so we're probably talking in this era somewhere. Probably. Probably not looking at any Burger King Bucky, but I get your point. If I'm quoting Jesus, probably over here. Maybe Revelation. There's some red letter parts there. There are things that clearly Paul is quoting Jesus. But in general, if I say, remember when Jesus said such and such, that would be the green historical stuff over here in the New Testament. Not because, not because we've memorized a song, though, hey, I'm proud of the kid that actually memorized the song, but because we know our Bibles. We know them. We, we understand what God is trying to say through that, and we understand the, the, the thematic context of what he's saying. So all this is to say there are a lot of preconceived notions outside and inside the church about the Bible itself, much less specific verses within it. There are preconceived notions that we have where we say, yes, Paul says all scripture is God-breathed. All that's God-breathed. Well, I do believe that you can make a case for that, but that's not what Paul is saying. Don't add to the words of this book. And by that he means this whole thing. Well, I think you can make a case for that, but that's not what he's directly saying. You know, this makes total sense as a, as a book word. Vaguely by length of book, and other books that are attached to the book I just put there. Not evil, not horrible, but once you start saying, oh, the, the, the Bible book order, the way it is here, it's, it's, it's crucially important you know, that you know where the books are. But as, as Sarah and I were even talking the other day, as much as I love Bible search engines and things, and that's great, where people have the Bible on their, on their phone, and that's wonderful. It makes it Literally at your fingertips. But all those people that literally have the Bible at their fingertips no longer know where those chapters are. They have no mental sense. Oh, that's about two-thirds of the way through the Bible. Oh, that's about... that's about Psalms is about halfway through the Bible and a thunk. That's where it is right there. They don't, they don't have that sense. They go, where's Psalms? Under P. And we really need to be familiar with our Bible. We need to understand it. There's yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I do. Yeah. That sort of relates really, because I think to. I mean, I still have to sing the song, mm -hmm. and then I have to remember the song. I'm glad so, you know it. You know, That's great. <laughs> I, so for me, there, you know, there's different things about learning and remembering and mm -hmm. things like that. So that's a struggle for me. But I'm curious, like, um, how do you? Well, I, a friend that was in seminary and came back and said, "Well, you know, the account of the earthquake and the." Splitting and things like that was just in there for dramatic effect. Yeah, it was kind of like a common thing that writers would do during that time is to bring in some kind of natural disaster to mm -hmm. emphasize something like that. And, I, and, and so now you just count that gospel. Mm -hmm. Well, it just, I, so yeah. I don't even know what I was trying to think about that, but you know, how you counter something that you feel strongly about when someone's coming out of seminary saying, well, that's just... Well, A, more seminarians and more people talking to seminarians need to remember that seminary does not make somebody right. Believe me, having spent three years in seminary, that's hard. 
to, to wrap your head around. You know, man, I've spent all this time reading thousands of pages the most brilliant minds. I'm, I'm right now. And you're like, um, you're a 16-year-old driving with your license going, I can drive! You know, so, um, uh, but, but also, he's right. Is that, that, is, that is completely common in the era, is to add you know, natural disasters. So, yep. So clearly Krakatoa never exploded. Sure it did. No, it's normal for people to add fake natural disasters to things. Yeah, but that doesn't mean Krakatoa didn't actually explode. Oh, you're right. It is common for people to add natural disasters into their theophanies. But that doesn't mean that they didn't happen in Christ's day. And that's the simplest response I can have. It's like, wait, are you? does your comment that other people did stuff like this completely negate the historicity of this? Do you have anything that suggests that this didn't happen? Well, a lot of people did that way. Okay, do you have anything to, you know, uh, a lot of people um, are gambleholics. Pretty sure that's not what Wendy's doing right now. But some people are, so maybe that is what Wendy's doing. Why would you automatically assume that? Unless you had some sort of preconceived notion to begin with. Anyway, let's close the prayer. Dear Lord, thank you so much. Thank you for the opportunity to, to have a Bible that we can trust. Father, I, I pray, help us to know why we believe what we believe. Help us never to just do it blindly or blithely, but help us to have some confidence and to be able to articulate that confidence, to be able to know our Bibles and trust our Bibles, and then, by definition, live like we know and trust our Bibles. Help us to lay this at your feet and glorify you with it. In Jesus' name, amen. By the way, Krakatoa totally erupted.